Hi everyone, I'm Jen Malat, a partner in the antitrust team at Freshfields, and you're listening to the Essential Antitrust Podcast. Today, we're going to look at the state of antitrust and foreign investment reviews in Asia. The region hosts the majority of the world's population and is an increasingly important engine of global growth. Now, while Asia's antitrust and foreign investment regimes are at various stages of maturity and levels of enforcement and scrutiny can vary from country to country, the picture has very clearly grown progressively complex, meaning now is a great time for a recap of what's happening. To give us a bird's eye view of developments in the region, I'm joined today by several representatives from our Asia antitrust practice. First, we have Kaori Yamada, who is the head of our Asia antitrust practice based in Tokyo. Hi, Kaori. Hello. Then we have Nanette Dodu, who's based in Beijing. Hi, Nanette. Hi there, Jen. We have Laurent Bogard, based in Hong Kong. Hi, Jen. And last but not least, we have Hazel Yin with us, who's an ex-Freshfields partner now at Roy Min in Beijing. Roy Min is an independent PRC law firm that is part of our global Stronger Together network. Hi, Hazel. Hi, Jen. So everyone, I appreciate that it is hard to generalize for a region that consists of more than 4 billion people and economies that are all over the place in terms of development. But Nanette, if I can pick on you first, uh, maybe I will ask you to have a go and summarize for us at just at a 20,000 foot level, what should businesses be thinking about in terms of antitrust in the region? I think the first point to note is that there's been a dynamic pace of change in competition law frameworks and enforcement across Asia. This is increasing uncertainty in deal-making and the need for robust antitrust compliance programs for companies doing business in the region. We continue to see the introduction of new competition law regimes, such as in Cambodia. Malaysia is also expected to introduce general merger control regimes soon. In newer emerging regimes, such as Vietnam and the Philippines, antitrust authorities there have shown that they will not hesitate to take action, for example, imposing remedies in the merger control context, such as in Vietnam, or pursuing complaints and investigations, such as in the Philippines. In the more mature regimes, such as China, Japan, India, Korea, and Singapore, there has also been a significant uptick in enforcement. There are a few key messages for companies doing business in this region. The first is that although antitrust regimes in the region are developing at different speeds, as you noted, Jen, by and large, antitrust authorities are actually getting tougher and flexing their muscles similar to the EU, UK, and then the US. The second and important message is that antitrust authorities in the region are increasingly talking to one another, whilst there may be differences in terms of approach to common issues or outcomes, there is growing convergence around priorities. A few examples worth mentioning are the treatment of digital markets, environmental sustainability, IP-rich technology sectors, and so forth. Thanks very much, Nanette, for summarizing that all for us. And I think it may make sense now to try to zoom in on some of those changes in the key jurisdictions in the region. Why don't we give it a go uh, first with China? Hazel, do you want to give us an update on what we're seeing coming from, from SAMR specifically? Thanks, Jen. Very happy to kick off uh, with a China update. China's antitrust authority, SMR, was not really that active with the enforcement activities during the pandemic, mainly because of the COVID control measures that disrupted its operations. Since the pandemic was over, SMR has demonstrated an increased appetite for more robust enforcement. 
In fact, 30 provincial-level AMRs all announced antitrust enforcement campaigns in the first quarter of this year and identified industries and contacts they consider as priorities. Just want to mention three factors to put this into context and to inform the evolving enforcement landscape in China. First, since the pandemic was over, reviving the economy and maintaining social stability has become the top priority of the Chinese government. And therefore, sectors closely related to people's livelihoods have become the enforcement priority, such as pharmaceutical, consumer products, automobile, construction materials, and the public utilities. In terms of contact, resale price maintenance and the cartels remain on top of the agenda. This year, there is already an RPM fine against a pharmaceutical company, in addition to a few ongoing RPM investigations. On the cartel side, cartels involving trade associations have been closely scrutinized by SMR and led to a few penalty decisions. Second, trade tensions and uh, supply chain stability have drawn the importance of self-sufficiency for central policymakers with special attention paid to key technologies and products. This will also likely affect the selection of investigations. For example, SMR recently published the draft antitrust guidelines on standard essential patents, establishing the legal framework to identify issues involving SEP licenses, for example, when the patent pool may have horizontal issues, under what circumstances a nice SCP holder may be considered dominant and the contacts that are likely abusive. Such legislative efforts may pave the way for more enforcement in these areas. Finally, the amended anti-monopoly law, which became effective last year, introduced much harsher penalties for failure to notify a reportable transaction and other antitrust violations as well as personal liabilities for entering into anti-competitive agreements. Associated with the introduction of such personal liabilities, leniency is now also extended to such individuals, and this will likely lead to more leniency applications. The new anti-monopoly law has also codified SMR's ability to use softer powers, such as administrative guidance meetings, to request companies to stop any competitive behaviors. In other words, SMR now has more powerful and diversified toolkits for more active enforcement. Thanks, Hazel. Well, we will all uh, certainly be keeping an eye on that. I think maybe let's look a bit at the wider Northeast Asia region where the KFTC in South Korea and the JFTC in Japan obviously are our key regulators who've had very active enforcement records for some time. Kaori, could you give us an update on what we're seeing in South Korea and Japan? And also, are there other uh, countries in Northeast Asia that are becoming more aggressive in their enforcement. So starting from Japan, Japanese authority JFTC used to be very sort of a self-restraint and generous, in other words, uh, authority, but things are very different now, unfortunately. So on the cartel front, the JFTC started to really hunt down a uh, former taboo industry. So this includes electricity, medical, pharmaceutical, and also a number of local smaller cartels. This is actually scary. So these smaller cartels have been hunted down recently. Traditionally, 
JFTC used to challenge only bid rigging and price fixing, so typical categories. But the most recent electricity cartel case is actually effectively challenging neither of these traditional categories. And so as a result, there's a lot of room for judicial test in the um, appeals court. And also um, the JFTC is stepping up in the unilateral conduct area. So this includes a dominance and abuse of superior bargaining position, which is unique to, in a way, Japan and Korea. And especially for digital cases, given that the JFTC used to set a very high hurdle to recognize abuse in fear of losing in the courtroom, basically, the JFTC is resorting more to soft voluntary tools to investigate things, such as uh, voluntary inquiries and market surveys where no due process whatsoever is available, basically. And also, uh, JFDC has been long criticized for not having any guidelines for horizontal cooperation. However, recently, the JFDC has finally published guidelines for cooperation, but especially for sustainability and also threw in in there mergers and other behavioral conduct related to sustainability uh, as well. So no surprises in terms of contents, um, mostly in line with um, EU guidelines. Moving on to Korea. So Korea um, is actually very, very active authority. And then like JFDC, a big focus on digital economy and uh, algorithmic uh, collusion and lots of platform investigation. And interestingly, because KFDC and JFDC talk a lot between each other, many cases investigated by Korean authorities are also pursued by the JFDC as the two authorities really sort of align even the content of the investigation. But there's a stark difference. The KFTC sets the thresholds very low to recognize abuse in the context of dominance. On the other hand, JFTC is very, very careful to recognize abuse, at least in the former process. So that's a sort of um, in the way KFTC is riskier authority. And also um, KFTC has been doing a lot of uh, legislative changes making an explicit prohibition against uh, exchange of CSI and even higher fines. So the sort of a trend of uh, Japan and Korea both, but clearer messaging, the pure information exchange is actually a bad area. This is a new thing. So that's uh, it from me, uh, update here. Yeah, and, and I think if we move a bit more towards the south of the region, ASEAN in particular, is, is is very interesting to watch at the moment. So we have a number of, of very different economies or, or economies at various stages of development, yet ASEAN uh, is clearly forming a framework for more cooperation between the various authorities active there. So all of them, as Nanette already said at the start, wanting to flex their muscles. And a a recent roundtable grouping various regulators in ASEAN actually revealed that the progress that they have made, further sharing of information between them, especially in merger control cases. So for merger control within the ASEAN region, business should bear in mind that authorities will be able to exchange information between each other 
on the ongoing merger reviews that they are doing. This all fits within the ASEAN Competition Action Plan that was set for 2021 to 2025. One regulator specifically to call out in, in ASEAN is the Triple CS in, in Singapore. Singapore, you know, obviously, a very extremely developed economy. Triple CS has a voluntary merger control regime. So, you know, say from the more complex cases, not immediately one that always takes the, the spotlight or, or, or is one uh, a regulator, one would frequently notify deals to. But the CCS has been very active on the behavioral side of things, and they've taken a leading role in the region in elaborating guidance for environmental sustainability cooperation. And this may actually influence the wider region. So they you know, may influence other regulators beyond the very small borders of Singapore. Another regulator to watch in, in the ASEAN region and worth calling out is, is in Vietnam, where recently the Vietnam Competition Commission has taken over enforcement duties from the Vietnam Competition and Consumer Authority, and that follows legislative changes in Vietnam. So we'll have to see whether the practice that's been developed over a number of years by the enforcer, the VCCA, whether any noticeable changes will be observed once the VCC, the Vietnam Competition Commission, starts enforcement. So that being said, again, at a bird's eye view, ASEAN is, is still a very disparate set of economies and, and that's reflected in the, in the different focuses of regulators. And I guess the best you know, illustration of that is right now the Cambodian Authority that's just been set up, the antitrust law has just been set up. They're still getting the substance of their regulations and merger rules right, whereas in Singapore they're now working on guidelines for sustainability and developing an assessment framework for, for AI. Thanks, Laurent. Um, really, really interesting to hear all of that. But I do want to go back, Nanette, to a point that you raised in your overview, just taking a step back from you know, some of the developments in specific jurisdictions. You had mentioned that there are certain sectors, I think including tech, that are really in the crosshairs here across the region. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? What are the sectors that, that the regulators are most focused on? The starting point is that no sector is really immune from antitrust enforcement. Having said that, though, there certainly are a few sectors which have been very much um, on the radar for authorities in the region. Since the pandemic, people's livelihoods have been front and center everywhere. And so antitrust authorities are particularly attuned to consumer-facing sectors. Take, for example, essential services such as energy, healthcare, life sciences, telecoms, and just generally technology-rich sectors. This focus is very much on the pricing of essential services and the terms and conditions of supply. Another area of focus is food. Other sectors which are sort of catching the attention of authorities is, say, warehousing or in Hong Kong, food delivery platforms and funeral services where the Hong Kong Competition Commission, in the case of the food delivery platforms, was investigating agreements between food delivery operators and participating restaurants, looking at MFNs, exclusivity terms and tying arrangements. With respect to the funeral services, this involved an alleged market sharing matter. 
Another point of note, more broadly, in the merger control context is the tech industry, where there is a degree of skepticism emerging on the effectiveness of behavioral remedies. This is a good segue into the other area of focus that I mentioned at the beginning, which Kaori has also touched upon. This is the question of digital markets. And this is a clear focus in the region. China was arguably one of the first to adopt sector-specific guidance on digital markets. Others are considering targeted issue-specific legislation, such as in Japan, as Corey mentioned, or Korea. In Thailand, they recently introduced digital platform legislation. Still others are also contemplating adoption of ex-ante codes or legislation for digital platforms, for example, in Australia or India, perhaps inspired in part by the EU's Digital Markets Act. A question, though, worth raising in this context is whether antitrust authorities considering such a specific tool can recruit sufficient staff and specialized data analysts or secure budgets to ensure adequate enforcement of this tool. It's also worth asking whether a DMA-inspired tool would actually work across the disparate markets that we see in Asia. Yeah, and those are all issues, Nanette, I think that are are front of mind for companies in the tech sector across the world. Um, And another topic that is front of mind for a lot of companies is the impact of China-US tensions on the economy generally. But Surely that has an impact in the antitrust and foreign investment face as well. Hazel, can you tell us a little bit about whether the current geopolitical environment is impacting antitrust enforcement in China? That's a very good question, Jen. In fact, if we talk specifically about merger control, uh, the process in general in China has become increasingly streamlined. Deals in non-sensitive sectors, even if involving U.S. acquirers, continue to be approved and very efficiently and do not seem to be impacted by the U.S.-China tensions. On the other hand, deals involving sensitive sectors can indeed find themselves caught up in the lengthy process, sometimes with remedies uh, or even timed out in a couple of recent transactions. This will particularly be the case if there are genuine competition issues coupled with vocal stakeholders such as customers or competitors. On the timing point, in the past, for complicated transactions, the parties often had to pull and refile in order to buy more time. Now, the new AML introduced the the stop-the-clock mechanism, which is very similar to that already existing in EU, allowing the parties or SMR to suspend the review timeline if more time is needed to answer SMR's request for information or to negotiate the remedies. The party should get prepared to leave sufficient time to get clearance in China and should have the flexibility for extending the long stop date if needed. In addition, the tensions between US laws such as export control and the conduct remedies such as commitment to supply to the Chinese market may render it nowadays more difficult for the parties to navigate through conflicting regimes and offer remedies that I can address uh, SMR's concerns properly. I guess uh, for Japan, my practice with Japanese companies generally, I just wanted to mention that this is, Japan is maybe one of the most affected area, both the Japanese companies and also uh, companies operating in Japan both ways. And uh, as you know, 
sort of there's this China US tension, but separately there's this uh, China Japan tension as well. So, for example, uh, a while ago, but 2012-2013, there was a bit of a moment that any filing related to Japan wasn't even reviewed for eight months or so. So that sort of thing could happen in the future as well. And it's really hard to predict uh, what would happen to antitrust process, both mergers and investigation. But just to summarize the attitudes generally, what we are seeing is that it's just that the many Japanese companies and also companies involved in Japan business are trying to effectively fly low as always is the case with this type of political or diplomatic tensions, not standing out is one of the key strategy. That's a good point, uh, Kaori. And I think in the merger control context, it's really important to factor in not only broader geopolitical tensions and the climate. Another key consideration is understanding local industrial policy considerations and priorities. Because in some jurisdictions, such as in China, antitrust questions are looked at together with industrial policy considerations. And that's largely as a result of the fact that the anti-monopoly law teaches that the authority needs to take into account the impact of a transaction on national economic development. This factor was indeed evident in a recent merger we handled, not only with respect to China, but in a number of other jurisdictions in in Asia. So understanding local industrial policy considerations is actually all the more important, especially now in a climate where there is ongoing geopolitical tensions. Yes, and if I can just pick up on that, Nanette, in, in this respect, it's really crucial to try and anticipate what any reactions would be from local trade associations or partners. So as part of any regulatory risk assessment, and and this is true in the merger control context, but also in, in foreign investment that we can speak about a bit later, anticipating what your local partners or trade associations would say about your deal is really crucial and will really inform how long it might take to get the deal through. So some of these points around industrial policy considerations are are a neat segue into the foreign investment side of things. Laurent, maybe you can uh, have a go at the 20,000-foot view on the foreign investment side in the region. What should businesses be focusing on? The first thing to note is that there hasn't been as much proliferation of foreign investment screening regimes in Asia as compared to Europe. There are clear exceptions in the wider APAC region with FERB in in Australia and the OIO in New Zealand, uh, which for all intents and purposes are are similar to American and European style of foreign investment screening models. The, The reason I say that there hasn't been as much proliferation of foreign investment screening is because there's still a preponderance of ex ante review and ex-ante prohibitions on certain types of foreign investment in various countries in Asia. So moving towards a system of foreign investment notifications and screenings in this region actually would count as a bit of a liberalization movement because certain areas that were actually previously closed off for foreign investment completely would now open up subject to notification, subject to review. Thanks, Laurent. 
Hazel, if a company is facing foreign investment reviews for a transaction, what kinds of issues in, in Asia would typically be front and center? In China, the key issue very often is a threshold question. That is, whether a transaction is indeed captured by the Chinese national security review regime or not. The current rules are actually very broad and vague and can capture various different types of transactions from direct to indirect acquisitions and also joint ventures, and also a very broad spectrum of sectors such as key technologies, infrastructures, equipment manufacturing, etc., etc. Eventually, very often it involves a risk-based assessment, and our recent experiences have shown that Consultation with a Chinese regulator has generally proven to be quite effective, and we've managed in a few cases to get the authority to confirm that a filing would not be necessary. I guess for Japan, were two things, two features: the really low thresholds and intervention by America. So, for acquisitions of listed companies in Japan involved in sensitive industries, the filing thresholds is as low as one percent now, as a result of the re- recent rapid amendments. And also, there was an interesting incident that the Japanese government approved a minority stake acquisition by a Chinese company, but it is rumored, or actually, it's probably true, that the U.S. government intervened into that Japanese government decision to effectively reverse it. I think the only other point to add is that regimes with FDI screening mechanisms are slowly popping up. Take, for example, Philippines. Which recently introduced an FDI regime that took effect in 2022. The regime allows review of foreign investments in, amongst others, military-related industries, cyber infrastructure, pipeline transportation, and such other activities which may threaten territorial integrity, safety, security, and the Filipino people's well-being. Thanks, Nandan, and thanks everyone. I mean, I appreciate that it is very difficult to give a summary of everything happening in a huge region of the world in 30 minutes, but I think you've given us a lot already to think about today. Maybe to wrap things up, I will ask、uh, each of you to just give us in a sentence or two what you consider to be a key message for businesses operating in the region. Maybe Nanette, do you want to go first? Sure, happy to.、Uh... In my sense, is the range of merger control and FDI regimes mean that when doing deals, it remains important to plan early, to clearly articulate a deal's rationale, and when assessing deal execution risk, to consider a deal's impact on individual Asian jurisdictions, particularly where there's a nexus, and whether appropriate local fixes can be crafted if necessary, and not to focus only on the EU, UK, and the US. On the conduct side, I would encourage companies to step up antitrust compliance programs. Several of the enforcers we've spoken to recently have signaled to expect an uptick in conduct investigations. For me, in my mind, the biggest issue for us here is really the increasing trend of voluntary soft investigations, where there's no procedural protection whatsoever. Parties are effectively dragged into confessions or de facto settlements without any opportunities of judicial appeals to test the JFTC or you know some other Asian authorities as well. This new interpretation of rules. 
So in Japan, for example, there's now new digital rules, as uh, Nina mentioned earlier, something very similar to EU one. But this issue, the soft issue, is likely to expand in that context too. So just to watch out. Lauren? My main message would be just to not treat the region as a monolith. I mean, you can rely on foreign competition law, whether that be EU or US law, to, to guide conduct in the region. But just be mindful that this can result in, in over or sometimes under compliance. So try and tailor the conduct to the country that you're dealing with and, and do not treat it, do not treat the APAC region as, as a single block like the EU. For China, I would say that uh, SMR now is gearing up after a relatively quiet period of uh, conduct enforcement and has recalibrated its focus from Chinese digital platforms to a broader spectrum of industries. I would say that now is the right timing to refresh your Chinese antitrust compliance trainings, downrate trainings, conduct internal audit to identify if there are any risk areas and get prepared. Great. Well, thank you very much for all of that. I think we're at the end of our, our time for today. But you know, thank you very much to Kaori, Nanette, Hazel, and Laurent for giving us this flyby tour of Asia. Uh, and as always, if you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Next month, we hope that you will tune in for a very special episode of Essential Antitrust, where Laurent Garzaniti and I will be interviewing Olivier Garçon, the Director General of DG Competition. So look for that coming to your inbox sometime in October. In the meantime, it's been great to have all of you today, and we will see you next time with more Essential Antitrust.